welcome back along to the Free Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vella. I know it's been a while since our last episode, and I hope that you didn't miss me too much. Now, rather than picking up where we left off with the Kalam cosmological argument, I am going to be recording a series of podcasts in which I present my book-length book review of David McAfee's book, Disproving Christianity and Other Secular Writings, 2nd Edition. This was originally going to be published with the 2nd with the edition of McAfee's book, but due to some last-minute changes with the publisher, it will no longer be able to be published. At the end of this series, I will post a PDF of the full review so that you can have your own copy and have access to the extensive footnotes that it contains. Now, for the purposes of these episodes, I am not going to be able to read out most of the footnotes since it would severely disturb the flow of the paragraphs as I read them, but I will try to insert as many as I can. At the end of this series, we are going to resume our discussion of the Kalam and other arguments for the existence of God, so don't worry about that. As always, if you would like to ask a question or comment on what you are hearing, please contact me on my blog at www.logicaltheism.blogspot.com. That's www.logical-theism.blogspot.com. Or email me at tylervella at gmail.com. Or you can always find me on Facebook. Here's a hint. If you can't find me by my name, Go ahead and swing by the Skeptics Testament podcast. I'm usually in some discussion there. And yes, that is a shameless plug for my friends over at the Skeptics Testament podcast. So with that, on with the show. Ladies and gentlemen, let's get ready to rumble! An exhaustive or exhausting book review. Disproving Christianity and Other Secular Writings, Second Edition Revised by David G. McAfee. Dangerous Little Books, 2011. Preface to the second edition of the book review. What follows is a revision of my original review of David's first edition of Disproving Christianity, Refuting the World's Most Followed Religion, which has now been updated and republished by Dangerous Little Books under the new title, Disproving Christianity and Other Secular Writings. For those of you who may be reading this and thinking that I am simply hounding him, rest assured that this is an agreed-upon project by David and myself. In anticipation of a book that we are working on together that will be a dialogue on various issues regarding both atheistic naturalism and Christian theism, we agreed that it would be beneficial to release an updated version of this second edition bundled with my book-length review. David and I have a very cordial relationship with each other and often hold public discussion on various internet threads, especially in his Facebook group. I noticed upon reviewing his second edition that David did seem to take some of my original critiques to heart, though not nearly as much or to the, degree, to the degree as one would hope, and he did adjust his tone, phrasing, and arguments to be more accurate on a couple of points. For those tempted to think that this is only a response by some religious fanatic who cannot stand the thought of their worldview being challenged, I'd like to point out that I am not the only critic of McAfee's work. My good friend and atheist Nicholas Brzezzi has also been quite vocal in his criticism of the book. Nicholas is the host of the Skeptics Testament podcast and not a Christian by any means. As we will see in this review, the kind of extremely simplistic and all too frequently shallow interaction with the weakest brand of Christianity one can muster is precisely the kind of arguments that Nicholas dedicates so much of his time to removing from his fellow skeptics. The next section will be seem tangential, but it will lead somewhere good, I promise. 
McAfee's book, Wikipedia page, and his Facebook group page all remind me of a strangely oblivious comment that Richard Dawkins made in the preface to the second edition of his book, The God Delusion, where he writes this of the reviews that the first edition received. Quote, it was warmly well received by the great majority of those who sent in their personal reviews to Amazon. Approval was less overwhelming in the printed reviews, however. A cynic might put this down to the unimaginable reflex of reviews editors. It has God in the title, so send it to a known faith head. That would be too cynical, however. Several unfavorable reviews began with a phrase, which I long ago learned to treat as ominous, I am an atheist, but... As Daniel Dennett noted in Breaking the Spell, a bafflingly large number of intellectuals believe in belief, even though they lack religious belief themselves. These vicarious second-order believers are often more zealous than the real thing, their zeal pumped up by integrating broad-mindedness. Alas, I can't share your faith, but I respect and sympathize with it. Dawkins, God Delusion, 2nd Edition, page 13. Now, what Dawkins seems almost keen to sidestep is just admitting that while all the non-experts ate it up, most scholars did not. His statement that it was less overwhelming is an understatement. Not to mention that if you read some of the most critical reviews, those by Christians notwithstanding, they were nothing like, quote, second-order believers, end quote, who were saying anything about some zealous broad-mindedness or even respect for belief. Atheist and philosopher of science Michael Roos at Florida State University, for example, wrote a blistering review of Dawkins' book and several articles about Dawkins' zealotry thereafter. For one to call Roos a second-order believer, or even that he is more zealous than the real thing, is just bizarre because it's so demonstrably not true. In fact, most of Roos's critique of Dawkins had to do with his sheer ignorance of the subject he, is, he was writing on. Roos writes, quote, For a start, Dawkins is brazen in his ignorance of philosophy and theology, not to mention the history of science. Dawkins misunderstands the place of the proofs, but this, but this is nothing to his treatment of the, of the proofs themselves. This is a man truly out of his depth, end quote. It is surprising then that Dawkins receives such is it surprising then that Dawkins receives such poor reviews from scholars for a book in which he cites G.A. Wells as a, quote, professor at the University of London, in order to show that there might be a case against Jesus, even existing, without mentioning that Wells is a professor of German with no credentials in either history or the New Testament, or that Wells had actually already recanted the Jesus mythicist position before Dawkins even wrote his book. What this all amounts to, it seems to me, is that Dawkins chooses to allow the roar of the crowd and possibly the checks in the bank to drown out academic study. Can Dawkins really not see that the problem is not in the critics, but in his content? The actor has begun to think that he is actually King Lear. Rather than seeing the reviews for what they were, the pomp of success that comes from people clamoring for any scholar to say something that they can quote mine to support their position, regardless of how well-researched or rational, so long as it comes as a witty zing from the end of a forked tongue. 
could Dawkins really not imagine that anyone could bring a genuine charge against his book? Here we may find a kissing cousin of what we have just undertaken in reviewing McAfee's book. McAfee, while he may be quite rational and well-researched on other topics, seems wholly incapable of giving a fair or honest reading of anything in or about the Bible, Christianity, or theism in general. His anti-theistic fundamentalism seems to cloud any ability at what may otherwise be a quite rational mind, though this is merely conjecture since I've never read any of his other works. What we find repeatedly in this book are unsupported assumptions, unnecessary woodenly literal interpretations, misrepresentations or misunderstandings of the Bible and Christian doctrine or practice, verses or passages ripped from their various contexts and treated as if they stood alone, an utter lack of research into Christian theology, biblical theology, exegesis, hermeneutics, or even basic Christian responses, as well as a kind of juvenile retelling of very antiquated and long disproven arguments against God. Mix in numerous conflations that ignore many real nuances between various Christian beliefs, denominations, the theological systems, etc., or in creating false dichotomies between them, and McAfee has made a real mess for himself to defend. When one thinks that arguments like what caused God or can God make a rock so heavy that he can lift are actually good or valid, it is obvious that very little has occurred in the way of study or investigation or in the gray matter between the ears on that topic. We also find that McAfee's own assertions have clearly gone unexamined or even allowed to be scrutinized prior to publication, and it is as if he was either unaware or totally unwilling to deal with the devastating critiques of scholars much more able than I am who have throughout the centuries responded to those very objections. Upon completing this book, I am reminded of the saying, if they had better arguments, they would have used them. Here, if McAfee had better arguments against Christianity, he would have used them. Unfortunately for him, but fortunately for the Christian, this was his A-team, his MVPs, his hit list. And he even tried to let what he thought were his best hitters to take more than one crack at the plate. But they all failed. So the point still stands. If he had better arguments, he would have used them. Having spent several years now in David's company and as a member of his group, frequently entering into discussions on threads, I have noticed the direct relation to the increase in the roar of his fans to the decrease in the reason of his arguments. Graphic after graphic, post after post, his threads ooze with self-assured wit and disdainful mockery all brimming over with appeals to emotion to cover over the vapidity of the reasoning behind them. And yet, David seems a little more than just interested in religious affairs. Obsession might be a touch too strong of a term, but it gets close. Post after post is an image of a screenshot of some conversation he might have had with a religious person, often a terrible example of one in which he then makes some pithy, snide remark to the effect of, look how stupid these religious people are, without realizing that he has not only not shown why the comment is wrong, only assumes we all should get the joke, but also that nine times out of ten, it is just the kind of crazy ant most religious people would rather leave locked in the attic or have nothing to do with anyway. 
would it be fair or honest of me to take some random hate mail I get from some bat crap crazy atheist about how all thieves should be arrested and shot yes I do get that more often one might think and say look how backwards and bigoted these atheists are as if that person's atheism even comes close to being an adequate representation of the group one is often reminded of the schoolboy with the crush who cannot express his love any other way than to pull the young girl's hair. He posts several posts a day, all about religion, more so than most of my religious friends, combined. While I will not shy away from calling a spade a spade and plan on pulling no punches, it is also my hope that this review will be as even-handed and honest as possible, even though it will be highly critical of the style, content, lack of research, and overall shallow nature of David's critiques of Christianity. There will be times where I will be quite severe with what seems to be really juvenile and shallow misrepresentation that seem to verge on willful distortion, but I would like to press, press this entire review by stating that I do not intend any of this to be a slight against David's person. I know him personally, and my comments are not meant to insinuate, insinuate that he is unintelligent, vindictive, or immoral. He is not any of those things. Only that his book is so poorly researched and argued that it is hard to imagine why so many people have given it such critical acclaim. To pilfer a great quote by Kayim Potok, if our arguments cannot go out into the world of scholarship and come back stronger, then we are all fools and charlatans. I believe that what I am about to present in this review will come back stronger. I am af not afraid of the truth. Unfortunately for him, I think that David's arguments will all come back tattered and torn and only a pale shadow of his original intentions for them after being subjected to even a modicum of the rigors of academic study. Introduction to the book review. Any book reviewer has the task of deciding the kind of evaluation that is best suited for the book being examined. For this task, they have several options. Some seek to write brief reviews of summation followed by several concluding thoughts. Others write a kind of macro or large-scale review of the structure, common themes, or method and approach of the book, a sort of room with a view surveying the fundamental assertions of the book at large. A third kind of review seeks to interact chapter by chapter with the information given. This final kind is quite rare and is often used only when the subject of the book is of vital importance and where the reviewer believes the author is so drastically misled that they can either throw their hands up in despair or plunge in head first. While I initially desired to write a review of the second order for brevity's sake, I have now decided upon reading McAfee's work to opt for a review of the final order. However, this is not because I think that McAfee's book is a tour de force for the skeptical or anti-theistic cause. As we will see, it is quite sophomoric and under-researched, and not wanting of opinion, but rather because I have found this kind of, quote, refutation, end quote, if it can be called that, is so prevalent among the blogs and online threads that it has led me to the conclusion that we are witnessing the emergence of a new kind of fundamentalism, what I and others have begun to label anti-theistic fundamentalism. 
McAfee's book is unintentionally a good summation, not of the Christian religion, which it seeks to disprove, but of the mindset, beliefs, and arguments of this new anti-theistic fundamentalism full of uncritical, unquestioned assumptions and a misrepresentation about the heathen and their beliefs, as well as blind faith to its own kind of a priori presuppositions. Some have even noted the irony of the religious nature of this new anti-theistic movement, replete with its own version of priests, churches, fellowships, dogmas, creeds, informal catechisms, inquisitions, revisionist histories, and even traveling missionaries and fiery evangelists. It is precisely because of this that I have decided for, despite the time and work commitment it requires of me, the lengthier point-by-point -point review of McAfee's book. What better opportunity does one have to deal with so many misinformed assumptions, illogical arguments, and misleading interpretations in one place than in a book review like this one? I apologize at the very onset for the length of this one review, but I think in the interest of disproving a disproof that if I were to not write such a review, even the stones would cry out for one. With that said, I will follow McAfee's own chapter heading so as to make comparison between his work and this present work more straightforward. Preface. The book, once we move beyond the acknowledgement, which actually function as an initial shot across the Christian bow, and the ominous appeal to a, quote, open mind, end quote, where one can wonder if he means a predisposition toward a kind of enlightenment skepticism, there is quite a fair assertion that disproving Christianity does not disprove God in general. Other conceptions of God, such as deism, could remain. I think that this comment is beyond the ability of many other anti-theistic writers, so it's quite admirable to find it at the outset of the book. Having now finished the book, even knowing the failed outcome of its intent, I can say that this disposition is something that McAfee really does hold to the end. He does not seem to blend various religions in the same manner that others do, and thus keeps good on his promise. One wonders, however, if we should expect a miniseries to, uh, to follow dealing with all organized religious belief. Beyond this, however, we begin to find our first concrete examples of the fundamental flaws of the book. Immediately, we come across that McAfee will be dealing with the Bible, both Old and New Testament, and, quote, contemporary teaching, end quote. Why address modern Christianity and not historic Christianity? Addressing only modern Christianity, as if it is monolithic in its teaching anyway, may be helpful in understanding cultural, sociological, and political ramifications of modern Christianity, such as American evangelicalism, or Latin charismatic Roman Catholicism, and how its developments have impacted Western culture. However, in dealing with the truth or validity of a religious system at large, i.e. Christianity, surely its historic roots and orthodox creeds, as well as basic doctrines, must be preferred. If Christianity really is false, surely it will lie at the root rather than the branches. We must look at Christianity before evaluating Christendom. Disproving modern Christianity in order to disprove Christianity at large, beside the fact that even most modern Christians are displeased with the current status and direction of the modern Christianity, is like trying to cut down a towering redwood tree by trimming the upper branches. Because McAfee seems to only be acquainted with modern Christianity, 
and not even very well acquainted with it in its most robust and defensible version, such as possibly those of the Reformed tradition, it causes his arguments to be geared more towards anti-intellectual, elementary, and uneducated, marginal, Western, American, fundamentalistic Christianity in specific, rather than the Christian religion in general. This results in a straw man argument where the weakest version of a belief is set up as normative or inclusive when in fact most Christians themselves would object to that very weak statement of Christianity. We can even wonder what McAfee hopes to gain should he succeed in his task of disproving the Christianity which he sets out, that is, modern American fundamentalistic Christianity. Even if he is successful, which I believe he actually comes nowhere near, he would not have disproven Christianity, the world's most followed religion, as the subtitle states, but rather a very lean sliver of one sociological subculture of it. This adds to the amazement that he chooses to attack Christianity through such a narrow course. For these reasons, we can see immediately where his lack of knowledge will begin to pose problems for his arguments. He states, quote, the Holy Bible's words create a battlefield within themselves in which contradictory statements are made, translations are forced, and major and minor edits of each account are made to suit the needs of one generation or the next. It is relatively impossible to consider that it would be flawless in any edition. End quote. Even a simple understanding of Christian bibliology would reveal several massive problems of a statement like this one that will have ramifications for much of what McAfee argues later. First, is the mingling of the Bible proper with later manuscripts, translations, and interpretations? For what would constitute a real problematic contradiction between, say, the original autographs of the biblical books and later editions or even later interpretations of later editions? In other words, why would we consider it a fault of the original text if later transitions, translations, or interpretations of that text from centuries later contradicted it? No biblical scholar would argue with the fact that there are errors in transmission, intentional or accidental, of the manuscripts and translation of the Bible. But do these establish a problem for Christianity or the Bible in its original form itself? Not in the slightest. What this poses a problem for is that specific later date translation or theological system. Again, pruning branches does nothing towards uprooting a tree. In fact, most sincere Christians are actually concerned to prune back those unruly branches themselves. So how McAfee sees this as a problem for the Bible is unclear. Beyond this, we see McAfee's lack of knowledge of an orthodox doctrine of inerrancy as displayed by his all-or-nothing concept and its invalid application to later editions of the Bible itself. Most inerrantists would tell you that inerrancy does not apply to our modern Bibles, but only to the original autographs. This means that we should not expect that our modern translations should be without error. Does this mean that they are not trustworthy? I do not have space here to develop the argument, but the work of textual criticism has, to a large extent, purified our textual evidence for the originals to a near 96 to 99.5% accuracy, 
for those with the PDF, there's a lengthy footnote on this point. Beyond this, even a cursory reading of B.B. Warfield's The Inspiration and Authority of the Bible, if any reading of such a dense work can be cursory, would suffice to show that, uh, that McAfee's, McAfee's notion of inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible is quite lacking in breadth, width, and scope. While it may be the case that some Christian positions resemble what McAfee will, call, will argue for, though, again, I'm at a loss for any concrete examples, but only leave the option available since there are always exceptions, it is simply not the case for most, especially historically, where inerrancy has actually been quite an amorphous doctrine. So, even if McAfee refutes this brand of Christian hermeneutics, it would be like saying one has disproven that extraterrestrial life exists in general because they have disproven extraterrestrial life on Mercury in specific. To, to disprove one brand of a thing does not, by extension, disprove all, disprove all brands of that thing. Next we find that the definition of Christianity found on page 4 includes the heavily loaded word literal which will be poorly handled later on page 10. In defining terms, this word should surely be at the near the top of the list for further refinement. For even among Christians, what is meant by literal, that it is God's unimpeded revelation concerning himself to man, is not synonymous with what we call an errant, that God's word is true and accurate in all that it affirms. Furthermore, Christians almost never mean what anti-theists or skeptics often try and force literal to mean, that the Bible is woodenly literal, not just an affirmation of truth, but in grammar and style, and should be read as we would read a, a modern technical manual. This is simply beyond any reasonable method for reading any ancient literary work, let alone the Bible, which is an anthology full of vastly differing genres, authors, historical contexts, and cultures, to say the least. To presume that the Bible be read like a 21st century technical manual is beyond absurd. While McAfee has not explicitly stated that this will be his hermeneutic, his apparent lack of any hermeneutical understanding, and my hindsight from finishing the book, affirms that this will indeed hold true in his treatment of biblical passages. Another troubling fact that will haunt the book rears its head on page 7. Here, McAfee says that he will almost exclusively use the 1611 authorized version, more commonly called the King James Version of the Bible. His reasons for this are quite bizarre. In the paragraph, he states that, quote, Though it is not the earliest translation, nor is it by any means the most recent, it is the most widely accepted among Christian traditions. End quote. This reveals several problems that will mislead McAfee throughout the book because of this poor choice. He is right that it is not the earliest, which should not bother us since in the case of English translations, earlier actually becomes less helpful, and that it is not the most recent. This is one of the problems. It is not recent. It does not enjoy the vast amount of textual discovery like that of the Dead Sea Scrolls, or with our current English translation. I'm sorry, or textual development, like the results of textual criticism that more current translations have, 
and it suffers from a lack of linguistic continuity with our current English language. Again, a helpful footnote on this point. While the KJV has been favored by many Christians for its poetic nature that leads to the fruitful devotional reading and aesthetic delight, scholars have long shown that for proper understanding of the Bible, the KJV is often one of the least preferable translations. That McAfee chooses to use the KJV almost exclusively can be nothing short of ignorance or willful rejection of the best versions of the Bible. In either case, anyone attempting to write a book disproving Christianity has no excuse for either. McAfee then goes on to assert that if the Bible is the Word of God and thus contains the infallible words of God, then it is obvious that, quote, any imperfections can, can essentially disprove the book and therefore the religion, end quote. I feel compelled to point out that this is anything but obvious. This is for several reasons. Firstly, McAfee seems to think that inspiration is a mechanistic project whereby God spoke the Bible by dictation to the authors, that it is wholly divine and not human at all. What makes comment like this so poignant is that skeptics like McAfee continually try to get Christians to see the Bible as a human document, but here seem to completely miss that creeds concerning the doctrine of inspiration often include clauses about the use of human language, themes, styles, and personality. The Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy states in Article, uh, in Article 8, quote, We affirm that God in his work of inspiration utilized the distinctive personalities and literary styles of the writers whom he had chosen and prepared. We deny that God, in causing these writers to use the very words that he chose, overrode their personalities, end quote. This is an important feature of the Bible to recognize during interpretation because often the text is expressing the emotional state of the author. This is especially true when we encounter psalms or songs of lament. An excellent example of this is found in Asaph's words of Psalm 73, 12-13, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands of innocence. End quote. Do we think that we must read the, this English translation so literally such that we are committed to think that it means that God is somehow or in some way affirming that evil people really are always at ease and always wealthy? and that it is in vain that believers in God try to keep their hearts clean of sin and their hands free from violence? In passages like this, we can easily see that what God is affirming is the realness, or possibly a better way to state it, the validity of having certain emotions as part of the human condition. Yet, in one sense, we also clearly know that while the emotion is, very, is a very real response, it is, in the view of the Bible, not true. <clears throat> in fact, Asaph goes on to say as much when he enters the temple and sees at the final end of those whose hands never cease from violence. The wicked are not always at ease or always wealthy, <clears throat> and it is not in vain to keep our hearts pure and our hands free from violence, as Asaph goes on to say. And yet, it's initially expressed in the Bible. I wonder what McAfee's black and white literalism of the Bible would do with passages such as this one. 
finally. He ends the preface with another very strange, strained summary of what literal must mean. He states, quote, We must first prove that the Bible is meant to be taken as the literal word of the flawless Lord, end quote. And then goes on to cite a smattering of Bible verses that talk about how the scripture cannot be broken, John 10.35, the Bible is written by men carried along by the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1.21, and that God will condemn those who can attempt to delete from the Bible what God has spoken, Revelation 22.19. The problem is that none of these passages tell us that the Bible is meant to be taken as literal, a word McAfee has yet to even define for us, let alone give us any insight into how we are supposed to read the Bible let alone how we should take the variety of different styles and genres of literature that comprise the Bible, or how the original authors would have intended us to interpret their writings in the first place. Surely, at the forefront of any interpretation of any text the, uh, is what the original author would have intended their primary audience to understand the meaning of their text to be. This is classically known as authorial intent. Before we can ever come to a conclusion on whether or not a specific text is factually, historically, morally, or even existentially true, we must first understand the answer to the question, what does this text mean? Unless we are hopeless postmodernists, then surely the original meaning of the author should take center stage on determining what the text means and then evaluate if that meaning is more or less true or false. Well, that wraps it up for us today. Join us next time as we continue on with the book review. We'll be exploring the chapter in McAfee's book entitled Cultural Christianity. Thank you all for joining us. And again, if you'd like to make any comments or ask any questions, you can comment on my blog at www.logicaltheism.blogspot.com. That's www or logical-theism.blogspot.com, or you can email me at tylervella at gmail.com, or find me on Facebook. Thanks for joining us, and I hope to see you again real soon.